Well, I want to say uh, if this is your first time joining us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship, whether you're in our room with us or if you're joining us online, we want to say welcome to all of you. It's so glad. I'm so glad to have you guys here worshiping with us. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we are going to be looking at the sixth of the seven letters of Revelation, the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, commonly referred to as the Faithful Church. But to open, I wanted to read another passage of scripture that I think pertains to the point and the context of the letter to the church in Philadelphia, and that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. And it says this, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all of this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You know, the challenge to give up in the face of adversity is something we all deal with. We all have multiple circumstances throughout our lives, sometimes multiple throughout the day, that cause us to want to give up. Specifically in the Christian life, there is a constant temptation to quit, to let up, to slow down when it comes to our witness and the declaration of our faith in Jesus Christ and preaching the gospel. And over time as we live and engage and endeavor to walk the life that God has called us to do, the disappointments, the frustrations, the hardships, they can all cause us to feel let down, to feel forgotten, abandoned at times. And they can cause us to get pessimistic, to find ourselves always expecting the worst or more bad to come. But it's in difficult times when the very thing we need is encouragement. We need to be encouraged. We need a word of hope. We need a reminder that things can and will get better. You know that word encourage? The dictionary definition is to inspire with courage. That's what encourage means. Courage to keep going. Courage to keep holding on. Courage to keep pressing forward despite the fear, the worry, the disappointments, the hardships, and the difficulties. Well, just like a great coach or a skilled trainer or a compassion-driven counselor, Jesus does exactly that for the church in Philadelphia by reminding them of who their God is and his eternal promises to them. And today, Jesus speaks to all of us to every single one of us, but especially those who may feel pressed down by the world around them simply for being a Christian. 
those who may feel discontent or feeling the temptation to, to think that God has forgotten you or cast you off somehow and left you on the side of the road. As you live choosing obedience to Christ and his word and his truth, yet wondering why sometimes you feel like the bad guys are winning. Our God, our, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's patient. He's long-suffering, his word tells us. And, and scripturally, it tells us that he desires none to die without salvation. And he calls us, he empowers us, his children. Those that have put his, our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, he calls us to that same patient endurance in this world and with this world. As we endeavor to be all things to all people, so that they would come to know Christ. And that we would seize every opportunity to share Christ so that we might lead those that are in darkness out of the darkness and into the light. You know, today the door of opportunity is open wide as it was for the Philadelphian church that Jesus is writing to and what we're looking at this morning. And like them, we have our fears, we have our worries, we have our, our frustrations, we have our struggles as we try to live for Christ in an ever-increasingly godless world. But like them, Jesus encourages us to hang on, to keep going, to keep running, to keep moving forward in faithful endurance. Why? Because great is our reward in heaven. Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word. Lord, you truly are wonderful. You are everything. You are life, you are hope your blessing, your joy, your peace. You are all of it, God. And Lord, as your people, we know we live in a world that is difficult, a world that is increasingly against you and the very thought of you and the very thought of anything you're about. Yet, Lord, you have called us, your children, to be in this world, not of this world, but in this world, to carry the light of the gospel into the darkness that those who are still lost and deceived, those who are currently and still enemies against you, God, would have the opportunity to come to know the hope, the joy of the salvation that we have come to find ourselves. Lord, I pray, God, today you would encourage us as we look at this letter to the Philadelphian church that we would receive the encouragement you had for them that we would understand that you see the challenges we go through as you saw their challenges. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would walk away from this study, Lord, as they walked away from receiving this letter, encouraged with the hope of heaven and the hope of the eternal reward that we will be with you forever one day. So God, we ask that you would speak to us and encourage us. But Lord, we want to start today by praising your holy name because you are worth it. We love you, God, and we thank you for everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we are in Revelation chapter three, starting in verse seven, and so we will start by reading aloud the words of this prophecy. He says, write to the church, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look. I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come down and bow at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. 
Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you might notice a few things in that letter that we just read, a few themes that kind of stick out. One, the first thing to notice is that Jesus has nothing bad to say. No rebuke for this church in Philadelphia, much like the letter to Smyrna, which also had nothing negative to say or no correction. They weren't doing anything wrong that needed correcting by the Lord. Yet, they were still experiencing the pressure and the persecution that we read in this letter they were called to endure. Now, some of that is because historically, there's a consensus that there wasn't a major presence of the Roman imperial cult there in Philadelphia. And so the pressures to blend and adopt the polytheism and the emperor worship that that all the other churches were pressured under, although it was present, it wasn't as intense as it was in some of the other places. So the pressure that originated, that was placed upon the Philadelphian church, didn't so much come from the secular world around them, it came from the synagogue, which is also much like Smyrna. Which for the early church, especially Jews who had converted to Christianity, Jews who accepted Jesus as their Messiah, this pressure from the synagogue led to isolation and instability, and rejection, denial, a sense of betrayal. And so what we see in this letter is these themes that Jesus brings up in writing to this church where he speaks of a key, and he speaks of open doors, and closed doors, and he speaks of stable pillars. And we're gonna see that all of this is really the reminder of the promise of their permanent acceptance by Jesus Christ into his house in his kingdom. But to give you the background on Philadelphia, Philadelphia was founded by King Eumenes II of Pergamum between the years 189 and 150 BC. And this city actually got its name from a title that was given to King Eumenes' brother. His brother was Attalus II, who was the general of his armies, and he was actually the one who became king next in line. Now, Attalus II, he was fiercely loyal to his brother Eumenes, and he loved him very, very much. Never betrayed him over the course of King Eumenes' uh, um, rulership, which was quite uncommon at the time. It was very common for generals (laughs) to rise up in power and get kind of popular and go, I should be in charge. And then they would go and overthrow the king or the emperor, right? It was just a common thing. But Attalus did not. Because of that, Attalus was given the title Philadelphus which means the one who loves his brother. Now, King Eumenes, he founded this city in honor of his brother, 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 and thus we get the name Philadelphia, which you've commonly known and heard that it means city of brotherly love. The phrase actually means brotherly love, and then Philadelphia means city of, city of brotherly love. So it's, it's the same name as the city you're familiar with here in the United States on the East Coast, but that's where the name of this city came from, 
Philadelphia was located about 30 miles east of Sardis, the church we looked at last week, along a major east-west valley route, which was a major military thoroughfare and a major trade highway from the east of Turkey and down into the Holy Land to the west side of Turkey, where some of the other churches we've looked at were located. Now, Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven cities of Revelation, and incidentally enough, it's the one we know the least about today. And that's due to the very limited archaeological work and remains that are discovered there. Um, This pic that's going to go up on the screen is actually an artist's drawing of the area. And what they have discovered in Philadelphia is a theater which seems like every Roman town had a theater, right? They had a stadium. There's some remains of a stadium where the chariot races were. There's one late period temple that has been discovered. Uh, Portions of the old Byzantine city wall, which is kind of like from late centuries, um, and some tombs. But all of it is mostly unexcavated. As a matter of fact, that uh, if you could see that little theater there that's kind of on that hill, uh, that theater isn't even uncovered. If you go there today, it's just a grass hill. But they just know because someone dug once and went, oh, hey, there's a theater here. But then they didn't uncover it. There's very little excavation that has taken place there. Um, In fact, the most prominent uh, remains that are there, and this is the pic that you'll see here, are the remains of the Basilica of St. John. Now, those large pillars there are three of six large pillars that held up the dome of this 7th century basilica, but that's really all that remains in Philadelphia. If you look on the Google Maps, Philadelphia, the modern city, um, or it's not called Philadelphia, it's called Al-Sahir, actually lies right on top of ancient Philadelphia. And so as a result of the modern city uh, sitting right on top of the ruins, much like Smyrna, unlike Smyrna, the um, local authorities have very little interest in excavating the area. They don't want to mess up people's lives and dig up the roads and stuff. And so those ruins that you just saw are actually you know, encircled by streets and it's just one little city block and the local authorities there have turned it into like a little outdoor museum and they've kind of thrown some of the remains on the ground so people can come by and look at them, but that's it. That's all we really have of this city. Now, from that limited excavation and then writings from the time and inscriptions found uh, there and in other places, what we do know about Philadelphia in the first century is that it was a city under the jurisdiction of Sardis. And what that meant is that imperially, it was a much, um, it was a city of lesser importance. It wasn't uh, in charge of the area in any way, much like Thyatira, where it was just kind of like focused on its own, own locale and wasn't so much involved in the politics of the greater area. Philadelphia then was very renowned for its vineyards. It had vineyards and very lush land that the, the, um, the, the grapes that came from the place were just highly sought after. There is evidence of the worship of Dionysus, which is the god of wine, duh, right? You, you have vineyards, you're probably going to worship the god of wine there. But the place was very prosperous um, until about 17 AD when there was a major earthquake in the area, the same earthquake that affected Sardis 30 miles up the road and leveled the temple there and stuff. But this earthquake um, destroyed the entire city of Philadelphia. A lot of archaeologists think that this particular earthquake in AD 17, the epicenter, was Philadelphia. And the devastation was so bad and so complete that Rome actually told Philadelphia, look, you don't have to pay tribute, no taxes from your city for five years so that you could rebuild the city because the devastation was so thorough. 
And then on top of that, for years afterwards, there was major aftershocks that just rocked the area, and all of this caused the people who lived in Philadelphia to live under constant worry that everything was about to fall apart again. Thus, Philadelphia um, went on expecting more help from Rome after the five years of taxes um, due to the damage and the aftershocks and the additional damage that would take place there, but that help never came. And so as a city, as a populace, the people there felt very neglected. They felt ignored. They felt rejected by Rome. And then that neglect turned into betrayal. At the end of the first century AD, right before this letter to them was written, during the rule of Emperor Domitian. And that neglect had turned to betrayal because at the end of the first century AD, their vineyards were doing really, really well. And they were so popular and they were so wealthy because of it that the emperor said, I want you guys to tear out all of your vineyards because they're competing with the vineyards outside of Rome. And I want Rome to have the market. I want Rome to get all the money from the sale of grapes and wine. And so rip out all of your vineyards. And well, he was the emperor, so they had to comply. Problem was is that those vineyards were the backbone of their economy. And so when they were torn out, it broke. They're already fragile and recovering economy. So Philadelphia felt deeply betrayed on top of the neglect. And it was hard because the people there were like, wait a second, like we, we're, we live in a city that is named for love and loyalty. Like we're loyal to Rome, like we're, we're on board. We're, we're with you, Rome, we're, we're loyal, where's the help? Why the betrayal? And so as a city, the citizens of Philadelphia felt that Rome had slammed the door in their face, neglected and betrayed them. Well, the church in Philadelphia, like the other churches we have looked at, was experiencing a very similar thing, and so Jesus writes to them in verse seven. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. Now, the previous letters we've looked at, Jesus has borrowed from the vision in chapter one very directly as he in introduced himself to that particular church because those, those elements of that vision, those elements of who he is, um, directly tied to the issue that that church was dealing with. Here, these three descriptors allude, not directly, but they allude to things from chapter one, but they have a subtle twist to them. In chapter one, Jesus identified himself as the first and the last, right? And we looked at that, how that means ties into him being the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end and all that. But here, he calls himself the Holy One, which has a subtle connection to that, but a different, uh, a different reason, as we'll see in a little bit. In chapter one, he referred to himself as the living one. Here, he says the true one. In chapter one, he says he has the keys of death in Hades. Here, he says he has the key of David. And the reason for those subtle differences from the vision he gave John in chapter one and the subtle um, modification of that here in this letter to the Philadelphia is because of the direct Jewish context of this letter. You might know as a Bible student that the early church initially grew out of the Jewish communities where the gospel had been preached and Jews came to believe that Jesus was indeed their long-awaited Messiah and so they converted. But this is where early Christianity and the early church came from. In fact, if you study it, the spread of the gospel started in Jerusalem and it spread out from there as it went to then spread throughout the whole world. 
If you guys remember Paul the apostle, his method as we read about so often in his letters was that he would arrive in a place and he would start in the synagogue. He would go to the local synagogue and he would preach and he would share Jesus as Messiah to the Jews there in the synagogue and whether they accepted him or rejected him, and most of the time it was they rejected him, he would then go out to the Gentiles and share Jesus with them. As a matter of fact, we see this methodology in in Paul's writing to Romans in Romans chapter one, verse 16, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And the idea is not one of superiority or anything like that. Yes, the gospel is for everyone, but chronologically, it was first revealed to the Jewish people and then it was revealed to Gentiles or everybody that wasn't Jewish. So there's kind of a pattern here. Jews were, were God's chosen people. We know that from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, you can even read about that and how the, the Jewish people were meant to display God's desire of forgiveness and reconciliation to the entire world. That's, that's why he chose them. You are my people and you're meant to, to, to shine the light of my gospel, if you will, my desire to save to the whole world and, and they didn't do a great job at that. And so in the New Testament, we see a focus in Jesus's ministry. According to Matthew 15, he says, I came first to the lost sheep of Israel. And then in his message, um, the message he came first to the lost sheep of Israel to proclaim is that he was indeed the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And you can read about that in Mark 6, Mark 14, and John 10. But the point is, is that foundation is where the Christian church grew from. The secular persecution against Christians didn't even start necessarily right away, or at least on a major governmental global scale as it did right away, because Christianity was originally just considered a sect of the Jews. It was considered a sect of the Jews. But as Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, and then started to reject those in the synagogues who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and then especially start to reject that Gentiles were being proclaimed as saved as they were hearing the gospel, the secular world more and more started to see that Christianity was indeed different, not part of Judaism, and that led to a whole slew of other problems for Christians. But here in Philadelphia at the end of the first century, the pressures were still primarily from the synagogue and the Jews that were there. And so Jesus uses wording and imagery and prophecy familiar to a Jewish audience. And that's the phrase, the holy one, the true one, and the key of David. These are things that a Jewish audience would very specifically pick up on. And they would understand these phrases as identifying Jesus as God Almighty. And Jesus as having the authority of God Almighty. That phrase, the Holy One, that we see there, this is something you see all over the Old Testament used as a title for Yahweh, a title for God. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, God calls himself the Holy One. So it was understood that anybody identifying themselves as the Holy One was identifying themselves as God Almighty. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I am the Holy One. I am God Almighty. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am God. And then that phrase, true one, that idea of true one there, that word true means genuine, authentic, or trustworthy. 
And so what Jesus is saying to the Philadelphian church here, primarily made up of Jewish Christians, is that I am the genuine Messiah. I am the genuine Messiah, the Savior that you've been waiting for. And then he uses this phrase, the one who holds the key of David. Now for any Jew, um, Jewish individual, King David was like the superhero of their past, right? King David was the most famous, the most just revered ruler of, of Israel. He was, he was looked, for, looked back on with, with just wonderful thought, right? Now in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, there was a prophecy made to the palace secretary Shebna that he would be replaced by a guy named Eliakim. But this is what it says there in Isaiah 22, 22. The prophecy says, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and what he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Very familiar to what Jesus is saying here in Revelation chapter three. And so the idea of the key of David was, was the idea that, that it was indicating having control over David's kingdom control over David's entire domain, control over David's entire house. That was the idea of having the key of David. And, and all of that meant control over the city of David, Jerusalem, control over the kingdom of Israel. And then very specifically, the one who had the key was the one who had the authority to determine who got to come into the presence of the king. And so then on Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, and Luke chapter one, verse 32, we read there in those places that the Jewish Messiah was prophesied to come and sit on the throne of David. He was the one that would have all authority. He was the one who would have complete control over David's domain. And so Jesus is firmly saying here to his audience, I am the genuine, authentic, legal, promised Messiah, God Almighty. I am the one who determines who shall enter into David's kingdom. I am the one who opens a door that no one can close and closes doors that no one can open. Philadelphia, I am the one who determines who enters my kingdom. That's his point in opening this, right? But again, very specifically using these Jewish phrases because we're gonna see the problem there was specifically in the context of the synagogue and the pressure that was coming from there. But he starts in verse eight and he says, I know your works. Look, I've placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So again, as Jesus has said to the other letters here in Revelation, look, I know all about you. I know what you're doing. I know how it's going. I know what you're going through. I know your heart. I know your motivations. I know all of that. That's all wrapped up in this phrase, I know your works. But then he says this interesting thing here. I've opened a place before you, an open door that no one can close because you have yet little power. The idea here is that the Philadelphian church wasn't a big church, wasn't strong in the sense of you might think of a strong church. They didn't have the big reputation and accomplishments that the church in Sardis had. Remember, you have a reputation, but you're dead. They didn't have money like the church in Laodicea that we'll look at next week. A church that had so much wealth and resources that they were then tempted to say, we don't even need to depend on Jesus. They didn't have much influence at all. They didn't really have any connections to important people. But what Jesus is saying here is, look, I've opened a door. It's under my power because you have but little power. 
They had a connection to and a strength from the most important, oh, excuse me, person, Jesus. And you just think about that. What wonders God can do with those who recognize their weakness. Those who depend on God's strength. Those who just go, it's not my wealth, it's not my money, it's not my talent, it's not my skill. I'm grateful for those things. But when we realize in the big picture at the end of the day, we are weak. And we could do nothing and accomplish nothing without Jesus. What miracles he does, right? You think of the 12 disciples. Right, if you know anything about the disciples, they were not the picture of the primacy of mankind. (laughs) The 12 best humans that have ever existed. Nope, they were kind of a selection of all of us. Problems. Peter putting his foot in his mouth constantly and, and just doubting. Just, but what did he do with these 12 men? Changed the entire world. You think of what God did back in these times without the internet, without live streaming, without modern technology. We think, oh, it's so hard to get the word out because, you know, our, our internet's slow. How about having to walk a letter 300 miles to another place? And yet God accomplished it because it's in his strength and his power. Now, I'm not knocking technology. I love technology. I love the internet, what we could do with it today, the tools. But if we think that it's because of those things that we're able to have an effect on the world for the gospel, we're missing the point. And he says to them, yet you have kept my word kept my word, their lives, their conduct, the way they lived, conformed to God's truth and not the other way around. That despite the fact that they were small and they had little power and they were weak, despite the fact they had no real effect around them, despite the fact they didn't have a lot of resources and and maybe they they didn't think they had a lot of talent, despite all that, he says, you kept my word. You conformed your life to my truth and not the other way around as what was happening in Pergamum and Thyatira But that word kept also means that they guarded the message. Keeping something also carries the idea of guarding it. And so they guarded the gospel. They didn't dilute it. They didn't water it down or alter it. They didn't compromise the gospel. They didn't um, corrupt the gospel. They weren't completely dead to the message of God's truth. And he says, you have not denied my name. That word denied there means to say you don't know or aren't related in any way to a person. Kind of what Peter did, right? I don't even know the man. But this ties directly into the challenge that was facing the church, because look with me in verse nine. He says, note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come down and bow at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. This phrase, synagogue of Satan, is the same exact phrase he used in the letter to the church in Smyrna the other church that Jesus had nothing to say about. And the church in Smyrna was likewise facing extreme difficulty from the Jews there and the synagogue. If you remember in Smyrna, they were spreading lies about the Christians and saying, oh, the Christians, yeah, they take communion. You know, they're actually cannibals because they're eating flesh and drinking blood. And oh, they hate families because they talk about, you know, it's, it's the family of God and Jesus himself, didn't he say, who are my mother and brother? You know, right? And so they were spreading all these false rumors about the church in Smyrna and it was causing great persecution there. Here, a different thing was going on. And he doesn't specifically point it out, 
But the idea here is what was taking place historically is after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the resulting oppression of the Jews there, um, Jews spread all over the place. They spread out all over the place and everywhere Jewish people would settle, they would found a synagogue. It was just a part of the culture, a part of their faith and living. And early Christians, as I said, especially Jewish converts, would often still meet in the synagogue with the non-converted Jews as a part of living because the faith community in their culture was a very, very critically important part of their lives. And again, as I said earlier, Christianity started out thought of as a Jewish sect, a, an, an offshoot of Judaism. That's what it was thought of in the beginning, but in time, as those Jewish people in the synagogue started to believe Jesus is the Messiah, and they would preach that he died and rose again, and they would preach the resurrection, and they would preach all of that, that he was the true and genuine Messiah that we have been waiting for, and all of that, on top of all of their outside evangelism just leading to all kinds of people converting to Christianity, eventually the Jews in the synagogue that didn't believe in Jesus just said, you know what, get out of here. We're kicking you out of the synagogue. You are not welcome here. Problem with that is that it alienated those Jewish Christians from their friends and family. Friends and family they had that maybe hadn't accepted Jesus as Messiah yet, but still went to synagogue on a regular basis because it was a core part of their culture. And so these Jewish Christians would, would, would show up with their family to the synagogue and the leaders in the synagogue would open the door and say, you guys can come in, boom, you can't. You're not allowed. We're tired of you sharing those false things about Jesus. Family and friends might have even started to deny their, their family, right? They would start showing up to the synagogue and they'd be like, isn't, isn't that your brother? Oh, no, no, I don't know him. Come on, let me in. I, 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 we have to do these things. I got I to gotta, I gotta do this to be right with God and stuff. Don't kick me out of the synagogue. As a matter of fact, no, I don't know that person and I'm not friends with them and actually, no, they aren't part of my family. And Jesus is telling the church there in Philadelphia, I know you haven't done that to me. You haven't denied my name. You haven't been going around telling people that, oh no, actually I don't know Jesus. I, I don't know, he, he's, he's, I, he's not part of my family, I'm not part of his. You haven't done that is what he's saying to this church here. Now their exclusion wasn't just social, but it could also get them in big legal trouble. Because if you remember at the time, especially at the end of uh, first century AD, the Jewish people had an exemption from Rome where as long as they paid the certain tax, they didn't have to go out and say Caesar is Lord every time they were called to do so. They didn't have to participate in the imperial worship because they were fiercely monotheistic. And so Rome was like, okay, look, you guys pay, pay us money, you don't have to worship the emperors, okay? Easy peasy, everybody's happy. Well, the problem was is to prove that you were exempt from saying Caesar is Lord was the membership registry in the synagogue. That's how you proved it. If they came by and the guard said, say Caesar is Lord, and you say, I don't have to, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish, or I'm a part of the synagogue, they would say, prove it. And they would have to go to the synagogue and look at the membership listing to see if your name was there. And if your name was there, oh, okay, cool, you're exempt, no problem. Or when they had to pay the taxes, they had to make sure that they documented the taxes to Rome for this exemption from every person. But when the Christians were kicked out of the synagogue, guess what? Their names were stricken from the synagogue membership list. Now when they didn't say Caesar is Lord, big trouble. 
They had no exemption. They had no way to say, I'm, I'm exempt from having to do this, and they would get in big trouble, possibly killed, for not proclaiming that Caesar is Lord. This is possibly um, the same thing that was going on in Sardis, because if you remember in Sardis, Revelation 3, 5, he tells the ones who overcome, he goes, I will never erase your name from the book of life. Right? So there might have been the same thing going on there to a degree. Now, Christians have been paying this price for knowing Jesus and this price for proclaiming Jesus. We've been paying this price for centuries. The price of exclusion and denial and rejection and even betrayal. We've been paying that price since the very beginning, and this is what the Christians in Philadelphia were experiencing. But they were experiencing it from the very people who were their social and cultural and spiritual community who are now estranged for them, I'm all estranged all because they kept the word. They said, we're gonna conform to how God wants us to live, and they didn't deny the name of Jesus. And he says this interesting thing to them. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. And we might read that and we're like, yeah. That's what I want God to make my enemies do. <laughs> right, bow down at my feet kiss my boot, right? We're like, yes, finally. Finally, Jesus is doing what I think he should do. Well, I'm sad to say that's, that's, I don't believe what he's talking about here. So what does he mean? Well, again, since it was primarily a Jewish audience in this church, <clears throat> I believe that this phrase evoked the memory of the story of Joseph. If you go back into Genesis and you read the story of Joseph, he was betrayed by his brothers. His brothers turned their backs on him and sold him into slavery. Years and years later, Joseph's brothers show up in Egypt begging for food because a severe famine had just killed everything. There was no food anywhere. But Joseph, being, being full of God's wisdom, had saved up food. And so everybody all over the world came to Egypt saying, can we please get some food from you? We're hungry. Well, guess what? By the time Joseph's brothers show up to Egypt to beg for food, God had raised Joseph up to be prime minister in Egypt. And so you read the story, it says, they came before him and they bowed at his feet, begging him for food and provision. Now that story is a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's love and God's protection of Joseph. But what we don't read in that story, Joseph going, you're darn right. Bow lower. Do you realize what you put me through? No, he had a moment, right? He had to kind of see if they were legit and stuff, and then he reveals himself, reveals himself to him. I'm, I'm, I'm your brother. And they're like, what? And, and big and happy family reunion, right? Jesus is saying to these Christians, I believe these Jewish Christians in Philadelphia note those in the synagogue, those who claim to be my people, those who say they are Jews but are not because they are liars, they don't know me, they don't represent me at all. They claim to serve me, but who they're really serving is Satan. Why? Because they reject the name of Jesus Christ. While they may toss you aside and cause you to be in the path of danger, legal trouble, possible execution, just for claiming me, who is God, who is the true Messiah, Jesus says, I do not cast you aside. I love you, I will protect you, I will raise you up, 
like the story of Joseph, and they will know it. They will know that I have loved you. So here's a church, a group of Christians that loved and was loyal to Jesus, living in a city that was named for both. And they had persevered, they had endured, as we see here in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is gonna come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. And so Jesus is like, look, to any and all who are suffering persecution for their faith, to any and all who are going through rejection and betrayal, to any and all who are living in a place in life where there have been so many earthquakes and you're just waiting for the next one to level everything, he says, hold on. Hold on. Hang on. Because the difficulties aren't forever. He's not making light of them. He's not saying no big deal. He's just saying, hold on. Eternity is coming. In eternity, in the, in the context of life, The Bible tells us life is but a puff of smoke. So he's given them the encouragement to hold on. The difficulties aren't forever, but glory and eternity is, and Jesus is coming soon to take us into it. But to those that deny Christ, what he alludes to here is that there's a time coming when they will be judged, right? He goes, look, you, you've kept my command, so I will keep you from the hour of testing that is gonna come on the whole world. That word hour there doesn't mean 60 minutes. It means time frame. There's a period of testing that will come upon the whole world. And that word testing, that word test that he uses there, it means to be evaluated. It means to have the quality of something determined. The idea is like, is this pure gold? You're gonna test it. You're gonna determine if it's true. And then when we get to chapter four, And through the rest of the book of Revelation, we're gonna get all the details of what will happen during that time of testing, during that time of tribulation, when the world is judged because God has evaluated them and found them lacking. Lacking what? Faith in Jesus Christ. If you remember this whole book, it's a revelation of who Jesus is. That's the point, that's the overarching purpose of this. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, God Almighty. And we have already learned over and over that he knows all. He knows our works. He knows every thought, every intent, every purpose, every plan, every reason. He knows the motivation behind everything we do. He knows it all. And so when he comes to evaluate mankind, those without Christ, those who haven't been washed washed clean by the blood of his sacrifice, Their works will be evaluated, and as I said, they will be deemed lacking because no man's work can atone for sin. It's only the blood of Christ. And salvation comes only through faith in him and his work on the cross. It's only the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning, heed the warning. He's coming soon. Your opportunity to find salvation in Christ is dwindling, and he wants to save you. He loves you, he died for you, and he wants to pay the price. He wants you to experience salvation and forgiveness and all that he has for you. But that opportunity won't last forever. For the Christians, he's saying, hold on. He's coming soon. 
and he will keep you from that hour of judgment. But he says hold on so that you don't lose your crown. So you don't lose your crown. You see, our life here in Christ, prior to the point that the church is taking out, prior to the judgment and tribulation that's gonna fall upon the earth, we get to live a life redeemed by Jesus. We get to live, live a life where we are then washed clean, and the Bible says that we are then clothed with the righteousness of God. And this idea of the crown here, it, it's referenced a lot in New Testament writing as a reward for those who know Christ. What we opened up with today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says we don't compete for a perishable crown, but for an imperishable one. One that is forever, one that has, has purpose and meaning beyond just something we place on our head as a reward for winning a contest. And so there's lots of places where crowns are mentioned, but in 2 Timothy 4.8, I think is the best description of the crown here in the context of this letter to Philadelphia, because in 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says this, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all of those who have loved his appearing. You see, there's a time when Jesus says, okay, the clock is out. It is time to judge the world. And he's gonna look down at mankind and he's gonna evaluate every single one of us. And some of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of God and washed clean of our sin, he's gonna look down and he goes, oh, you're mine. You're looking forward to my coming. You love my appearing, you've been waiting, you're clothed in righteousness, here's the crown of righteousness to cap it all off. But for others, it's judgment. It's judgment. And he doesn't want you to go through that. You can choose to, sadly, and it'll be horrific. And we're gonna see that as we study the rest of Revelation. But he wants you to know him today. In verse 12, he goes on to share the promise of those who persevere in faithful endurance. He says, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. This idea of pillar here, I think it's a multi-reference. It references uh, a bunch of different things. Now most, um, when, when they look at this or they comment on this, they go, oh, pillar. You know, pillars represent strength and stability, and they do, right? Um, pillars represent something strong. But again, the audience of this letter, I believe, was primarily Jewish Christians. And so he connects pillar with the temple of God here, right? The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And so I think for the Jewish readers, they would have immediately thought of the temple in Jerusalem, which at the time of this letter had been completely torn down some 20, 25, 30 years prior. They would have thought of that temple. But then he connects names being written on the pillars. I think for the Jewish audience, that would likely remind them of these beautiful, majestic pillars that were at the entrance of Solomon's temple. You can read about these in 1 Kings 7. There were these massive pillars. They were 18 feet in circumference, 35 feet tall, capped in bronze on both sides, which incidentally was bronze that had been captured by King David as spoils of war in his conquests. And they would think of these pillars because in 1 Kings 7, you could read that these majestic pillars were named. One of the pillars was named uh, Jachin, 
I think is the right pronunciation, and the other one was named Boaz. And what Jochen means is he, God, will establish. And what Boaz means is that in him, God is strength. And so together, these pillars were a reminder that God would establish his temple. God would establish the worship in his temple in strength. That's what these pillars were representative, right? However, the citizens of Philadelphia, the people that have grown up there, they had heard about and seen man-made pillars topple all the time, right? Big earthquake in AD 17, everything fell down. Aftershocks, boom, everything falls down. Like pillars, that's not strength and stability. They fall down all the time. Matter of fact, our whole lives are governed by when's the next aftershock. Stay away from the pillar, it might fall on you. Even the Jewish readers, not just thinking of the recent temple, 30 years prior, those pillars had been toppled, right? No stone left upon another. But then thinking of Solomon's temple in Jeremiah 52, we read about how that temple was completely destroyed and toppled. But the reference, the reference to the names of those pillars had nothing to do with the man-made pillars standing strong in eternity. The point was that they would live on in God's spiritual kingdom, that God would establish in his spiritual kingdom, in his strength, worship of him that would, that would never fall down, that would never topple. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, this is what Paul says. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God? Christians, listen up. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. We are his pillars. We are his pillars established by God's strength to worship and bring glory to his name. It's not a building, it's not a place, it's not a physical location. The church is God's people. And we are are established by God to worship him. And because we're established by God, the church of Jesus Christ, those who love him and are called according to his name, that church will never topple because it's not man-made. It's God-made. But just to make the point, and I think God has a sense of sarcastic humor in different ways, just to make the point, if we look back from 2023, back to the history of ancient Philadelphia, what's the only thing still standing there? the pillars of the church, the pillars of the Basilica of St. John from the seventh century. But to these Christians living in Philadelphia, Jesus says, don't worry about your name being stricken from the synagogue registry. Don't worry about that. As a pillar in God's temple, you're gonna have God's name written on you. You belong to me, you're a part of my place of worship, you're a part of my family, my community. Don't worry about living in a city named for love and loyalty while experiencing none of that. Don't worry about that. I'm gonna write the name of my city on you. You're a citizen of the New Jerusalem. Don't worry about those who claim to be my people but are not because I'm gonna write my name on you because you're my child. And you will have the name of the Holy One, the True One, God Almighty, written on you. Why? So that you know I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never neglect you. I will never betray you. And then he says there that that you will never go out again. What does that mean? That I will never slam the door in your face. 
You are and forever will be part of my family. Welcome in my house. Just hang on and continue being faithful. And let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I want to close real quick on this phrase in verse 8 where he says, I've put before you an open door that no one can close. What, what does he mean there by open door? Verse 7, he says, I hold the key. And what I open, no one will close. And what I close, no one will open. And then verse 8, look, I've placed before you an open door that no one can close. Well, here in the letter, there's no specific explanation of exactly what he means there by open door. But there's biblical precedent that can help us understand what he means there. The idea of an open door represents opportunity. The idea of an open door represents also an invitation to come into something, right? Someone opens the door, it's an invitation. So there's a few different ideas of what this open door can represent. One, it could represent the door of salvation, the, inter- the invitation to know Jesus, right? But he's writing to saved people, so it's kind of, for me, a little weird that he would be like, hey, the open door of salvation is before you, church, who's already saved, right? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, It could be the door of safety from judgment, right? Verse 10, he says, I'll keep you from the hour of testing. And incidentally, that implies that when he judges the earth during the tribulation period, the church isn't there. And then Revelation chapter four, verse one, he says, after this, after chapters two and three, after the church age, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me, it said to, it said to me like a trumpet, come up here and I will show you what may take place after this. So John is taking up, taken up into heaven and from there he sees the judgment of the world. He sees the tribulation of the world from heaven. And then we've mentioned this before that the church isn't mentioned again in Revelation starting in chapter four. Church is absent as all this judgment takes place on the world. And so in that context, the open door could reference, be in reference to a door of safety, a reference to the rapture, a reference to to their catching up before judgment. Or it could be referring to the door of opportunity for the gospel. You know, often in the New Testament, you see this phrase open door um, in reference to an opportunity to serve, an opportunity to step out and do what God's calling us to do as Christians. In 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul says, hey, I can't come to Corinth yet because there's, quote, a wide door of op- effective ministry open for me in Ephesus. In 2 Corinthians 2, it tells us that God opened a door for Paul in Troas. In Colossians 4.3, Paul says, pray that God would open a door for us to speak the word. And so I personally, I, I, I see all of those interpretations possible, but I I think this last one fits the context of the letter better because they had an open door to keep sharing Jesus as Messiah to those people in the synagogue and to the people in that city, and that open door cannot be closed no matter how hard the Jews in the synagogue worked to shut the Christians down and to silence them. It wasn't about their strength, it was about the strength of God, and if you're gonna fight against God, you're gonna lose. And so he's like, look, they're trying to tell you you're not gonna get into David's kingdom. I'm telling you, you belong to me. And there is a door open before you to keep walking through and doing what I've called you to do to keep preaching and spreading the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ. You remember what we opened with in 1 Corinthians 9. We all have a call and an opportunity to further the gospel even in the face of rejection and betrayal and disappointment. And I believe what he's saying to the Philadelphian Christians is I've opened that door of opportunity to the gospel for you. 
and despite the difficulty, keep being faithful. As we run hard and discipline ourselves like an athlete, we do so to win an imperishable crown, that crown of righteousness, that crown of glory that God is gonna give those that are just um, his people. And it's a door that's open, not of our own effort, otherwise circumstances, otherwise adversaries, otherwise all that kind of stuff could close it. The government tried to shut the church down three years ago. What happened? The doors flung wide open. You can't stop God. And the world can't and they won't close that door. But it's not a door we could hold open on our own anyways because we have little strength. It's all about God and his strength and his power. So the church of Philadelphia, they were strategically placed in a, in a, in a place right on this road that was, had massive traffic going back and forth where they could reach out to so many other cities. So many came through in that little town that needed to hear the gospel. It was kind of the place you passed through, not so much a place you stopped. Massive opportunity for the gospel to plant seeds that were then taken to other places, that were then taken to other places. Soldiers, traders, travelers come through all the time. And then, yeah, you had people that lived there in that city that despite the betrayal, the church in Philadelphia had an opportunity to stand strong and to be strong and to remain strong in their faith because it was God who strengthened them. It was God who made them pillars in his temple and nothing would ever knock that down. And it's the same message to us today. We have so many opportunities in front of us. So many opportunities at work, family, friends, hobby groups, whatever it might be. We have opportunities in front of us at all times to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to tell people about who Jesus is, that he loves them, that he died for their sins. We have the opportunities, yet far too often we don't look for them or we ignore them when they present themselves. We might feel scared, we might feel uneasy, we might feel like, I don't know, the next earthquake is just gonna rock our world any second. We might feel rejected or neglected or betrayed by friends and family and coworkers because of our faith and we're thinking, I don't have the strength to keep doing this gospel thing anymore. I don't have the strength to endure what preaching the gospel brings into my life. But God is calling us to faithfully endure. God is calling us to faithfully endure and guess what? He has already equipped you to do so. He's given us everything we need, every bit of strength necessary to endure, regardless of what comes at us. He has opened the door. All we gotta do is step through it. To run the race that we've been called to, to be all things to all people, that we might might win some to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God. Lord, it's, it's you that is the solid rock we stand on. It is you that holds the door of opportunity open in front of us. And God, we know that the devil is working overtime in our lives to shut down our witness. The devil would love nothing more than for us to just be quiet and keep our faith to ourselves, Lord, but we know that's not what you've called us to do. You've called us to stand strong, to be bold and confident, because the gospel changed our lives. We want others to experience that same thing, the forgiveness, 
the overwhelming love that only comes from you. And so God, I pray for this church and I pray for all churches, Lord, that we would all remain faithful in our endurance, that we would remain faithful to keep your word, to not deny your name regardless of what comes against us. That God, as the darkness gets darker, we would just simply shine brighter, not in our own strength, but because of the power of your spirit in our lives. Lord, we know people need you. And we know there are many out there who just reject you, who deny you, who make excuses. Lord, and, and God, we're not responsible for people's response. We're just responsible for getting the message out and to walk through that door. So God, may we be faithful in that. May you protect us from those that would slander us and, and try and reject us and betray us and kick us out of things, whether it's work or business or, or wherever, Lord that they would try and isolate and silence us because of our proclamation of faith, Lord. We just ask you to protect us from that. But God, at the same time, if you allow that to happen in our lives, that we wouldn't let up, that we wouldn't give up, that we wouldn't slow down, but we would continue to be all things to all people that we might have opportunity to lead some to you. And we know, God, life is gonna happen around us, Lord, and we know the earthquakes of life are just gonna take place, Lord. That's what happens. But we trust you with our lives. We trust you with everything, God, and ask you to continue to use us, continue to place doors of opportunity in front of us for the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, because we know you're coming quickly. We know you're coming soon, Lord. And every single one of us know too many people that don't know you yet. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to be bold. We're so thankful, God, that you're the one who makes us pillars in your temple, that you write your name on us and claim us as your children, that it's not about our upbringing, it's not about the city we live in, it's about none of that, God. It's about the fact that we belong to you, God Almighty, that we belong to Jesus Christ. Help us to live in that truth, God. We love you so much. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's worship, guys.